Blog Talk Radio. Women have the power to transform this world. We can end crime and violence if we all agree to do one thing. Share. Let's share our wisdom, share our time, share our talents, share our finances, but most of all, let's share our love. This is The Female Solution. Join me, Naima Latif, every morning, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, as we bring you stimulating discussions about the issues affecting our lives. If you're listening online at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the-female-solution, press the blue button that says follow and get our daily topics every morning directly to your email and your smartphone. Hi, I'm Naima Latif, executive producer of the Female Solution Radio Show. We invite you to call in 515-605-9325 and participate in this daily think tank as we examine the challenges we face and develop solutions that restore peace and harmony. We are global transformers, changing the world from the way it is to the way it should be. We are one. Wherever we live on this earth, we are one human family. On behalf of our team of radio hosts, I'd like to extend a greeting to all the members of our family, whenever and wherever you may be listening around the world. To our family in China, Ni Hao. In India, Namaste. In Japan, Konnichiwa. In Korea, Annyeonghaseyo. In Russia, Zdrastutsye. In Germany, Guten Tag. In Poland, Dzień Dobry. In France, Bonjour. In Spain, Hola. In Italy, Ciao. In Egypt, Athen Wasalan. In Ghana, Akwaba. In Nigeria, Peleo. In South Africa, Saobona. In Senegal, Nangadef. In Kenya, Jambo. In Israel, Shalom. In Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia, Assalamu Alaikum. Greetings, and may peace be upon you all. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Please hold and you will be able to listen to the show.
Shalom. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Otto's Tiny House Village, where we are drumming in some wise, wise words from our ancestors tonight. And we're drumming in a lot of history on Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. Yes, it's time. It's time to bring this to the chessboard because guess what? That's what the elites are playing. They're playing a chess game. And those of us who don't know how to play chess, we're confused and we're wondering, what the heck is going on? Why is this happening? But it's a spiritual chess game. And that's why we're talking about a chess game life lessons tonight from Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. So welcome, welcome, all of you, all my global family. So, so happy to have you joining me tonight. And the show is going to go like this. I'm going to give you some very short history lessons from Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. Why history lessons? This has been going on for years and years and years. And it's important that we understand, understand, all understand why these countries are in the news today like they are today. Because they're on the chessboard like other companies. I mean, there's lots, there's other pieces on the board. But for some reason, we are to learn lessons from Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel during this season of major, major transition we are transitioning. We are seeing, the, we're going to see the seeds of history that were planted many years ago that need to change. That's, that's the reason for looking at Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. It's only three of many countries we could be looking at. But as we see the seeds of history that have been planted, we will begin to see the dark energy the killing, the destroying, the the disrespect for life. And we will begin to see that this is not acceptable anymore. These are some of the lessons we're going to learn from looking at these three countries, what's going on. We're seeing, for one, Venezuelans are coming to the United States by the thousands, by the thousands, as things have worsened and, and devolved, as they would say in that country. We're seeing uh, sanctions being put on the Cuban people, and I was just there a couple of months ago, and we, we can see how the poverty level is, is high and um, inflation is high in that country. All these seeds that were planted years and years ago. And then, of course, Israel. They're in the news every day. You can't, there is not a YouTube video on uh, the online right now that's not talking about some level of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Everybody's got their point of view on it. Who's right, who's wrong, what's good, what's bad. But tonight, we're not going to do duality tonight. We're going to bring in the pawns and ask the question, how do the pawns become queens? Now, if you know how to play chess, you understand why I'm asking that question. But if you don't know how to play chess, you're going to learn a little. I've invited all my chess players to join me tonight, and especially I've invited uh, my brother, L.A., uh, from uh, It's My House book show to join in because he's been talking about chess since I've known him. He plays online, and he knows the game. 
but we're going to transmute it and transform it into the reality that we see in the world with the history and the seed planet. And our whole goal and intention tonight is asking how the pawns can become queens in this game of chess that's being played all over the world, war games, war machines, war ships, this, submarines, all of this. How can these pawns become queens? Some of us don't look at ourselves as pawns now. There's a lot of pawns. The pawns are, are like out on the front. Those are the military maybe on the front. But then you've got the bishops. Let's see, you've got the bishops, you've got the knights, you've got the rooks, and then, of course, the king and the queen. So which one are you playing on this life chessboard game? That's the question you want to ask yourself. What position are you in on this life chess game that we're all in, whether we like it or not? It's a part of our reality, whether we know it or not. So I want to start tonight with a little history about uh, Cuba, because Cuba, I was in Cuba uh, in July, June or July, I forget, um, and I learned a lot about the city of Havana. That's the only place I was in. So I observed the people and the environment, and I want to start off there with a very brief history of Cuba. It's only about six minutes. I tried to keep each of these history uh, explanations less than 10 minutes. That was hard to find because most of them are 50 minutes, 40 minutes. But I did find some short videos on the history of Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. So we're going to learn a little history first, set the, the, the foundation. And then as we move along in the show, we will hear about the chess pieces that apply to this history that we're going to learn about uh, for these three countries. His Cuba, uh, Venezuela, and uh, Israel. So let me pull up first uh, a short history of Cuba. And, again, it is very short, six minutes, I believe, so that we have a foundation to work with and we can begin to uh, unpack the chess game that we're all playing and really get into um, the numbers maybe if our number guy shows up. So here is going to be a super quick history of Cuba. Let's do this. Let's see. Sure, I'm going to play the video and the audio for you. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. Super quick history of Cuba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mr. This is the Caribbean, and here is Cuba. Now, let's go, shall we? The biggest Caribbean island, Cuba was first inhabited around 3000 BC by peoples whose simple lives of hunting and fishing with crude tools made from mollusks has left little behind to learn about. Many centuries later, the similarly simple living Guanajuato Bay made Cuba home, but were pushed out to the western tip of the island by the Taino, who arrived in canoes from South America around 1250, that's AD, not PM, and took over most of the land, farming, playing ball games, and 
and building villages of thatch-kept huts ruled over by chiefs. These were the people whom Columbus met when he sailed over from Europe. Naturally, he claimed the island for Spain. Taino dominance of Cuba was soon ended as they ended up conquered and, possessing no immunity to introduce diseases such as smallpox, started dying with disturbing rapidity. The unscathed were sent to slave in mines in blatant disobedience to the command of the king and queen of Spain that the natives be treated humanely and paid wages. By 1513, the number of natives was so minuscule that slaves were imported from Africa to replenish the labor shortage. Cuba has many natural resources, but not much gold, which is what the Spaniards wanted most. As such, Cuba became the Spanish Empire's main HQ in the New World, the spot from where de Soto traveled up to explore North America and from where Cortes launched his campaign to conquer the Aztecs of Mexico. Spain fortified Cuba once it became clear that the English, French, and Dutch had plans for the Americas too, not to mention the pirates hoping to scrape off some riches for themselves. Things calmed a little by 1700, and the following years saw Cuba develop a profitable industry based on sugar. Spain found itself at war with Britain, which saw the British capture Cuba's capital, Havana, and they would have kept Cuba had not Spain agreed to give Britain Florida instead. As the Industrial Revolution began to bloom, Cuba invested heavily in machinery and mills to boost their sugar production. By 1860, Cuba supplied nearly one-third of the world's sugar. Sweet. Yes, with a bitter aftertaste of knowing that this was the result of slavery, which was finally abolished in 1886. Meanwhile, calls for independence were loudening. Cuba had withstood the revolutions of Latin America, where countries split away and won liberty from Spain. But now the people were restless and wanted to be free, and numerous uprisings flared up and were repressed. No one wanted Cuban independence more than the poet Jose Martí, who had been exiled for his activism. On his return, he died in battle and became the country's national hero. Martí dreamed of independence, but also feared American annexation. Those fears materialized in 1898, when the U.S. intervened in Cuba's war of independence. The American public had been hoodwinked by the fake news rolling hot off the press from men like Citizen Kane here, where fabricated stories of Spanish atrocities against Cubans horrified the public. When the USS Maine was sunk, most likely from an accidental fire in the coal bunkers spreading to the magazines, Spain was blamed and war became inevitable. Spain was crushed by America, who took Cuba, only handing it to the Cubans after guaranteeing their economic interests in the Platt Amendment. So Cuba was, I suppose, free with Tomás Estrada Palma as first president. He leased Guantanamo Bay to America in perpetuity, but he faced severe opposition in 1906, leading to the second occupation of Cuba by America. While Cuba was again returned, continued American intervention to safeguard its economic interests in the island made it clear who was really boss. As you've no doubt noticed, Cuba seemed fated to have a wonderful relationship with the United States, with many warm memories to look back upon when charting its course in the future. For decades, Cuba was subject to corrupt leaders, and society was tense and muddled. Now one way to silence discontent, aside from enacting reforms, is using force. This was the policy of Fulgencio Batista, who took power in a military coup in 1952. The Cubans were in quite a quandary. About a third of them were impoverished, the sugar-based economy was stagnant, the mafia was running Havana, and American tourists were drinking and living it up right in their faces. A revolutionary movement began to expand under the leadership of communist Fidel Castro. His rugged followers took to the hills, and a guerrilla war ensued that saw Batista toppled and exiled and Castro in control. In response to Cuba nationalizing private-owned American oil refineries, the U.S. imposed an economic embargo on Cuba, which was bad news, as the Cuban economy had long depended on America. Luckily, Cuba had the backing of the USSR, whose monetary support sustained it. Some 200,000 Cubans fled to South Florida, while Castro had his opponents executed. Castro's famous sidekick, the Argentine Ernesto Che Guevara, has ironically made a lot of capitalists happy via t-shirt sales, and himself became a ruthless executioner at La Cabana prison. Castro had his hands full with revolutionists, 
fighting him from the mountains, which encouraged the CIA to try to overthrow him in the Bay of Pigs invasion, or fiasco, which ended in a total Cuban victory. The following year saw the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the Soviet Union planned to place nuclear weapons in Cuba, and where the US opposed it, and where everyone thought World War III would happen, but Khrushchev and President Kennedy came to an agreement, and the crisis ended. Cubans then began intervening around the world in support of Marxist causes. Che was doing so in Bolivia in 1967, when he was captured by Bolivian forces, acting on CIA intelligence, and executed. Cuba's next major migraine sprouted in 1991, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which had been propping up Cuba for decades. Economic hardship followed along with food shortages, so Castro began encouraging capitalists to invest in Cuba, building hotels and so on, and a subsequent tourism helped the country stay afloat. In 2008, the ill and ailing Castro passed power to his brother, who enacted numerous reforms, including more private businesses and less government restriction. In 2014, President Obama oversaw the resumption of diplomatic relations with Cuba after over 50 years of estrangement. But when U.S. embassy staff in Havana began suffering various health issues in 2016, the Cuban government was blamed and the U.S. reimposed restrictive measures. In 2019, Miguel Diaz-Canel became president of the isolated country. What the future holds is uncertain, but let's hope it's good. So that's Cuba, the country popularly associated with cigars, mumbo and cha-cha-cha, streets lined with laundry drying in the sun, kids without shirts riding bikes, a healthcare system that makes every Western socialist salivate, classic cars, Ernest Hemingway, rum and mojitos, a country which in reality is far more complex, certainly for a mere super quick history. Until next time, bye-bye! a quick history of Cuba. Now, if any of you have any comments about that uh, video, as well as the ones following, please, please go ahead and make your comment. It's a quick history, leaves out a lot of details, but I already see some comments uh, in the Facebook. Let me read. Um, Empress Regina, hey, great being, beloved. Yes, yes, yes. We are being test pieces tonight. Thank you, Regina, for joining us. And Gary, or no, Craig Van, say, hey, Craig, thank you for joining us. The Bay of Pigs. That was a huge move, a huge military operation that shaped the history, the seeds of history. And uh, Craig also says Castro did not want the Italian mob coming in with gambling and prostitution, afraid the island would be lost and Cubans made to bow to foreigners. Castro hated the idea. Yes, 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 absolutely. And that is what uh, what Craig is pointing out, seeds of history. Why today is the United States uh, in putting on another in economic embargo on Cuba to cause suffering by the citizens of Cuba. The citizens are, are suffering because inflation is too high. People cannot afford to buy food. Who's controlling all these economic uh, moves that cause more suffering among the average citizen? And that's what we're going to see uh, in these examples of Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. These elite ego, I must say male, I don't hear any women involved in these decisions with the government yet. Uh, where are the female influences that may would, would maybe avoid some of this? But that's what we saw in Cuba. 
is that all these men came to rule. They became corrupt. The, the mafia came in. And uh, Craig also says there are also a lot of Cubans with dual citizenship between Cuba and Israel. How about that? Same thing happening in our government. Okay, so there's the first similarity, I would say, between Cuba and Israel. Dual citizenship between Cuba and Israel. So guess what? There's a lot of, say, Zionists in Cuba, maybe running things. Uh, there's a big difference, my brothers and sisters, between the covenant-keeping Jewish people who are now protesting in Israel and the United States to get Netanyahu out of that position and, and, and uh, bless the Palestinians with peace and freedom. Then you have the Zionists who are in between, who have dual citizenship between Cuba and Israel, and that's who's in our government. There's a bunch of psychopathic, warmongering Zionists running Washington, D.C. That's what, that's what I'm seeing. When you have uh, the whole world protesting free Palestine and ceasefire, and yet our government is approving more money, more money to Israel, what's going on there? What's going on there, people? Who's running the government? Not us, that's for sure. So that's the first country that we are looking at to set up our chessboard. We're going to set up the chessboard after we look at the seeds of history for Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. So let's go to Venezuela. How many of you know where Venezuela is, in fact? Uh, that would be good to put up a map of some kind. I'm not sure if I have a map uh, in any of these uh, videos. But let's do, why is Venezuela so poor? Venezuelans are in Chicago in droves lately. There's a huge, a growing population of Venezuelans in Chicago. What's going on? So let's look at the seeds of history for the beautiful country that is in South America called Venezuela. Venezuela has the largest reserves of oil in the entire world. More than Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and even much larger oil-rich countries such as the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Despite this, Venezuela does not have a strong economy. In fact, Venezuelans today are markedly worse than they were 20 years ago. So why is Venezuela so poor if it has access to so much money generating oil? Hello and welcome to Geography by Jeff. Venezuela is a fascinating place. While the country began its life as a colony, it would eventually go on to become the first independent nation in South America. However, the discovery of vast amounts of oil has seen it devolve into an authoritarian petrostate in recent decades, which has ended in the country becoming incredibly poor today. And, as with all of my videos, there's a geographic reason for this. But first, if you're a fan of my videos, consider supporting me over on Substack. Paid subscribers get access to even more geography every week, special call-outs, ad-free podcasts, and these extra special perks. So if you want to support my work and get access to all of these extra bonuses, Substack is the place. I'll see you there. Like with most countries today, Venezuela has its fair share of colonial history. But before we get to how the country was shaped by European powers, 
it's worth highlighting that Venezuela was home to many indigenous civilizations, including the Timoto Cuica culture. This society was very complex and had pre-planned permanent villages surrounded by irrigated terraced fields and many other features that would be common in Europe at the time as well. But while Venezuela was home to an estimated 1 million indigenous peoples, the arrival of Europeans would upend their lives completely. Christopher Columbus first landed in what is now known as Venezuela during his third voyage to the New World in 1498. However, it wasn't until the early 1500s that Spain established their first permanent settlement in South America in the present-day city of Cumana. This marked the beginning of the Spanish colonization of the region, with the Spanish crown seeking to expand its empire and secure its claims to the New World against other European powers. And as Spain expanded throughout the continent, they would impose their institutions, culture, and religion on the native populations. This would include an economic system known as the encomienda, whereby the crown granted settlers a number of indigenous people from whom they could demand labor or tribute. As the colony of Venezuela expanded over the centuries, Spain would continue to establish new cities and territories. Initially, the region's economy was based on pearl fishing, but later it expanded to include agriculture, livestock, and mining. But as Spain continued to exploit its Venezuelan colony, its people would start to think about what life might look like as an independent country. The first rumblings of independence within Venezuela began in the late 1700s. Influenced by Enlightenment ideas of freedom, equality, and self-governance, along with examples set by the American and French revolutions, the colonists started to question Spanish rule. Discontent was fueled further by heavy taxation and strict trade restrictions imposed by the Spanish crown. On July 5, 1811, a Congress of Venezuelan provinces adopted the Venezuelan Declaration of Independence. This marked the formal beginning of the struggle for a free Venezuela. Simon Bolivar, often called El Libertador, emerged as a key figure in the fight for independence. Initially, he faced several defeats and was forced into exile multiple times. However, his resilience led to the formation of the army known as the Patriots. With Bolivar's leadership, Venezuela would eventually win its war for independence in 1823. Following the war, Bolivar's vision led to the creation of a federation known as Gran Colombia, comprising present-day Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Panama. However, the federation was short-lived due to internal divisions and political disagreements, and Venezuela would secede from Gran Colombia in 1830, cementing its status as a fully independent nation. Like with many of Spain's colonies, Venezuela would wage a long protracted war for independence. But while independence was a defining moment for the South American country, it would be the discovery of vast amounts of oil that would shape the Venezuela we know today. But before we get to how oil would change Venezuela, if you're enjoying this video, hit that subscribe button. More fun geography videos are just a single click away. Oil has been a huge economic resource boon for many countries over the last century or so. Countries in the Middle East such as Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, and Iran were able to basically fund their entire national budgets on the back of the vast amounts of oil they were able to pump out of the planet. And because these countries controlled so much oil, they were also able to create an organization called OPEC to control and influence oil prices around the world. But while OPEC member states would primarily be based in the Middle East, one of the founding members was all the way in South America, and that country is Venezuela. Venezuela would first discover oil in Lake Maracaibo on its far northeast coast in the early 1900s, but it would take a few decades until the nation would emerge as a significant player in the global oil industry. By the 1930s, Venezuela would become one of the largest oil exporters in the world, with the highest per capita gross domestic product in Latin America. Much of this is due to the oil and significant investment the resource brought from foreign oil companies. 
but the influence of foreign companies in Venezuela's oil industry generated backlash over time, leading to the nationalization of the oil industry in 1976. After seizing control of the country's oil, the government would establish Petróleos de Venezuela, a state-owned company responsible for the exploration, production, refining, and exporting of oil in an effort to maximize its profit from the oil industry. And for a while, it seemed like Venezuela was going to become one of the wealthiest countries in the world. The oil boom of the 1970s, triggered by a surge in global oil prices due to geopolitical events such as the Arab-Israeli War and the Iranian Revolution, would bring even more money to Venezuela. And with oil revenues filling government coffers, it would lead to a period of significant economic growth for the country. The increased oil revenue enabled the government to fund ambitious development projects, expand public services, and implement extensive social programs. It was during this time that there was a marked increase in living standards, a burgeoning middle class, and an urban migration trend. At this moment in time, Venezuela was one of the wealthiest countries in South America. Unfortunately for Venezuela, their oil fortunes would not last for long as a series of global geopolitical events and continued infighting, corruption, and mismanagement would eventually empty the country's collective pockets. In 1973, Venezuela was producing and exporting 3.5 million barrels of oil per day. But by 2020, that amount had dropped to a little less than 600,000 barrels per day. This is despite the fact that Venezuela has the largest proven reserves of oil of any country on the planet with 304 billion barrels. Put this number in perspective, if Venezuela went back to pumping 3.5 million barrels per day, it would take over 237 years for the country to run out of oil. And while the foundation of Venezuela's wealth was based on its huge oil reserves, this would unfortunately lead the country to an over-reliance on oil as a source of income. This created within Venezuela a commonly known economic effect called Dutch disease, wherein an upsurge of a singular resource leads to a strengthening of the local economy, but also makes other industry sectors less competitive. In Venezuela, the oil sector flourished, but others like agriculture and manufacturing suffered, leading to an economy that was excessively dependent on oil. And it was this lack of diversification in economy that exposed Venezuela when oil prices plummeted in the 1980s and again in the 2010s, causing an economy that was very unstable. It was this economic and social downward spiral that would pave the way for Hugo Chavez to seize power in 1998. Chavez immediately passed laws which expropriated private companies, expanded social welfare programs, and increased state control over the economy. Initially, these changes were popular, but the policies over time severely strained Venezuela's finances and deepened the country's dependence on oil revenues. Following Chavez's death in 2013, his successor Nicolas Maduro continued implementing these policies amidst declining oil prices, which precipitated a full-blown economic crisis. By the mid-2010s, Venezuela was grappling with hyperinflation, critical shortages of basic goods, a collapse of public services, and a drastic surge in poverty rates. This economic crisis, one of the worst in recent history, triggered a mass exodus with millions of Venezuelans fleeing their homeland in search of better opportunities. Venezuela today is still very dependent on oil for its revenues. While the country isn't producing nearly as much oil today, the industry still accounts for about 95% of all export revenue from the country. This means that Venezuela still hasn't diversified itself enough to ensure a more stable economy. This combined with the economic policies enacted by Venezuela's current president and sanctions issued on the country by the United States and other Western European countries, has led to hyperinflation rates north of 3,000%. To put this in perspective, the U.S., which has been suffering from high inflation over the last year, 
has averaged around 8 to 10% inflation, and this has led to a huge exodus from the country. In 2015, Venezuela had approximately 30.1 million people, but by 2020, that number had fallen to 28.4 million people. Since 2015, Venezuelans have fled to over 90 countries to escape the economic collapse. Between 2015 and 2017, Venezuelan immigration increased by 1,388% in Chile, 1,132% in Colombia, 1,016% in Peru, 922% in Brazil, 344% in Argentina and Ecuador, 268% in Panama, 225% in Uruguay, 104% in Mexico, 38% in Costa Rica, 26% in Spain, and 14% in the United States. The good news in all of this for Venezuela is that the country does seem to have stabilized a little bit. Since 2021, Venezuela's economy has stopped contracting and has begun to grow again. But while that's great for everyday Venezuelans, it will take a long time for the country to emerge from the deep, oil-filled hole it's dug for itself. Venezuela is a tragic example of a country over-relying on a single resource to support its economy. While oil might seem like a boon to a country's pocketbook, not accounting for climate change, it ultimately led to a Venezuela that is poorer today than any of its nearest neighbors. I hope you enjoyed learning more about why Venezuela is so poor despite having so much oil. If you did, please subscribe to my channel. And All right, no, we're not going to do that. But how do you what do you think about Venezuela? Are there any Venezuelan experts out there who know a little bit more because listen, that was just one of hundreds of videos on Venezuela and Cuba in fact. If you want to learn more there is a really good documentary on Netflix, especially about Cuba, that has probably six or seven episodes. I got to the fourth episode, and I had to just take a pause and break. But it's just fascinating to me to see the seeds of history that need to change. Both Cuba and Venezuela concentrated on one resource for their economic wealth. In Cuba's case, it was sugar. Sugar was the, the, the money coming in for sugar uh, caused lots of growth in the economy. And then guess what? The demand for sugar uh, and other countries producing sugar uh, caused the economy of Cuba to uh, fall and, and lessen and suffering in Cuba. Venezuela, the oil all of that, or they, Venezuela has more oil than any other country in the world. And yet what happened? The economy and other countries uh, coming into the picture of trading and selling, and that's what you get, a country starts to change. So what we're going to do now is go to a break. I'm going to take a break. So if you have any questions or comments before we go to Israel history, ah, my my guest is here in the studio, and we're going to bring, after the break, I'm going to have him bring in the chess element with what we've heard so far. L.A. is my guest tonight. And uh, get a little, I got to put on my um, my router for tonight because I see my Wi-Fi is acting up. So we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to bring on my guest, L.A., from um, It's My House, and we're going to talk a little bit about chess before we go into Israel, and maybe he can give us some insight on that that chess game as well. But let me um, play our 
Let's see. Let me play our commercial for the day. Let's see. Let's see. Where is Okay. But any questions or comments while we're uh while we're looking up let's see, we're gonna go to we're gonna to go to the female solution promo. And I'm welcoming all of your questions tonight. If you have any questions, now's the time. Post those questions. And we'll be right back after this break. So here we go. The Female Solution Global Radio TV Show invites you to an invigorating conversation with our team of hosts Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Time. Start your week with Monday Morning Mindfulness with Zelda Speaks. Tuesdays, Self-Bell Care with Jody Toussaint. Wednesdays, Repairing Broken Families with Naima Latif and co-host Kareem Hamid. Thursdays, Soulful Solutions with Dr. Debbie Green. And Fridays, Health and Wellbeing with Viata. Saturdays, tune in 12 noon to 2 p.m. Central Time. First Saturday, Success Strategies with Jana. Second Saturday, Wendy Williams Esquire on Relationships. Third Saturday, Move Around with Deborah. And fourth Saturday, Wisdom with Mama D. Join us Sundays, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Central Time for Soul Purpose Healing with Viata. Call in and comment 515-619-325. Press 1 to speak to the host and be a part of the solution. All right, we're back. I'm going to bring – first, let me just uh, mention some comments here. Uh, from Facebook, we have Craig saying, yes, there are many Zionists in Cuba, which is a really good introduction into the history of Israel, Zionism, and Jews. Very different. Very different we understand that tonight. And Zelda, our Monday morning host, says, Grand Evening Queen is my position. Yes, that is definitely a queen there, Zelda is the queen of Monday morning mindfulness. Is there any other? <laughs> yes, we're going to talk about the positions on the test board, which are the most powerful, which are the best. And, and Zelda said, is there any other position to be other than the queen? And then, wow, nice quick briefing. Yeah, I'm trying to keep the seeds of history brief tonight. We're getting the history from Cuba, Venezuela, and Israel. And I don't even know if we're going to be able to cover all of those countries on the chessboard, but we're going to try. And then Zelda says, dual citizenship has become popular, especially those seeking simpler life, less expensive. Yes, and the dual citizenship of the people in Congress and our government says a lot, because most, a lot of them are dual citizens of Israel and the United States. So that tells you who is working for the Zionists in the government of the United States. So let me bring on uh, my brother, my friend, L.A. Davis, uh, to tell us a little bit about the chess game. Good evening, L.A. Thank you for joining me this evening. Good evening, glad to be here. Loving your red color. That suits you very well. I love that red. Thanks. All right. We've been talking about, I don't know if you uh, chimed in, when I played a his little history of, um, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to open or plug in my, my uh, router because I'm rotating. 
Louis, I played a little history of Cuba, played a little history of Venezuela. After we talk a little bit about the chessboard, I'll play uh, Israel. Tell, can you tell our audience a little bit about the game of chess, why you like it and what it can teach us, and especially, as Zelda said, I mean, would, it, would you want to be anything other than the queen in the game? <laughs> Go ahead, L.A. Well, let me comment on the queen part. <clears throat> In reality, the queen is just a pawn with some fancy moves. So she can be caught. She does, she can do a lot because she's got, she can do fancy moves, but she assists with Relating the game of chess to world events or everyday life, uh, the, in my opinion, the most important thing that a person must learn uh, in a game of chess, is the board. The board represents landscape. It can be the landscape of the United States, the global landscape of around the world, what's happening, politics, geopolitics, and all that. So the board represents the landscape. If you don't know your landscape, you're going to lose. It's plain as simple as that. So with the chess board, you've got 64 squares, and you've got 16 pieces on both sides of the board, okay, uh, including the queen on one side, the queen on the other side, which leaves you with 32 squares that are empty. Essentially, and I'm putting this in street terms, essentially, chess is a game of me trying to take your resources. That ends up in checkmate. That's the bottom line with chess. So with Venezuela, the wars that are going on, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, and all that right now, it's basically somebody trying to take somebody else's resources, which is, if you know the landscape of the, glo- the world or individual countries, like in the, in the globe right now, in the world right now, you have 8, mi- 8 billion people on planet Earth. Eight, but 50% of that only occupies just 1% of the total land mass. Over 1% or less than 1% of the land mass, when 90, uh, 99% of the global land mass is available, which resources, oil, water, whatever you can think of. Even in the United States, 86% of the population in the United States occupies just 3% of the landmass. 97% of the United States of America is rural. Okay. So you need to know the landscape. So these wars that are going on right now, they might seem significant, particularly to the people that live in those areas or they have loved ones in that area or friends in that area or whatever. But in the course of the world, you have other people that are playing chess and saying, you know what? I'm going to let these people obliterate each other. And when they've been obliterated, I'm going to step in and take those resources. So that's how I look at the game of chess. You have to know the landscape first. You need to know players involved. Like in the game of chess, to start off, you've got 64 squares, 32 pieces, of which but the name of the game is, it, once again, there's 32 empty spaces to start the game. So there's enough resources 
on both sides to be sustainable without attacking anybody with no war. But man being man, I want to take your stuff. It's not enough for me to have my stuff. I want yours too. And then in the process, both sides get they lose people. Positive are the first ones that, that get knocked off. So, I mean, hopefully that can, I, I narrowed it down to the, the simplified in the game of chess. Yeah, thank you, L.A. And it seems so ridiculous and childish that people are willing to kill and murder and destroy when there is so much land available on planet Earth. It just seems, when you look at the whole board, the chess board, just think about, you know, here's the thing I think about. When you start out with the pawns, or you can move anywhere you want, really. You don't have to. I'm learning as I play chess. You don't have to move the pawns first. You can bring your knight out and jump over. You can. Uh, that's about the only piece that can jump over the pawns, right, is the knight. Yeah, yeah, yeah moving the L circle. Yeah, you're right. So there's one piece that, that lines the back. All, of all the pieces in the back, The let's see, we got the bishop, the knight, the rook, and the king, and the queen. And then all the pawns are in front. You got all these pawns lining up in front. And only one piece can come out of the like the royal row in the back and get out there and move wherever it wants, right? I mean, you could could you uh, uh, legitimately start play the game with only the knight in the beginning? You, if you're skilled enough, uh, you're right. Matter of fact, there's a, a, a some people play this called blind chess, but they play blindfolded, and it's, uh, there are people that can play ten people at a time. Because they know the landscape, they knew that board, and they can remember each move. So that's what I'm saying. The most important thing that people must learn in the chess, as well as in real life, the landscape of the United If you don't know the landscape of the United States or any country and the rules that exist, you're going to get slaughtered. It's as, it's as simple as that. Now, a place like Cuba, you are definitely limited in how much land is available, more, well, let's say more limited, in how much land is available to the people because it's an island, right? Right. Uh, and, but Venezuela, you got all South America. And as it said in that, in that history, uh, Colombia was developed in that area. And, you know, a lot of people have, a lot of uh, migrants or, or people have moved out of Venezuela area when times of turmoil and trouble into other areas of South America. And the map actually showed how many percentage are in the United States, how many, what percentage are here, there. They're all over. Right. Well, you have to remember this about Venezuela, too. The government, the federal government is broke. Right. That doesn't mean the critical. For instance, if you got on a you got a passport, if you got on a plane, made a trip over to Venezuela tomorrow this week, the moment you got off that plane, you would be a wealthy woman in Venezuela. So the government is broke. That doesn't mean everybody in the country is broke. So you have a lot of Westerners that are flying down. They're making second homes and relocating to Venezuela. Why? Because they can go from a struggling economy be, to becoming wealth virtually overnight. So why are Venezuelans coming to America in droves right now, do you think? Because you're talking about the poor ones 
who don't know how to, they don't see the resource of their country. Because if you, you can go right on YouTube, which is one of my favorite barometers, you have the, the passport bros. The passport bros are going to developing countries, including Venezuela. Why? Because the guy who works on the frying machine at McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's, just with a passport, okay, they can fly over to Venezuela or a number of 90 other countries, and once they step off the plane, they're wealthy people. Well, and that's what happened in Cuba when I went. They were more um, demanding U.S. dollars than they were right. their own money. So the right. dollar is – and who – how did that happen, you know? Is it because of the embargoes and the, the restrictions that the United States put on those countries that all of a sudden our dollar is worth more than their money? And that's, that's in quite a few countries. Yeah. I don't know how much it multiplies like in um, some countries the dollar multiplies by 20, 60, even up to 3,000%. It just, it, it multiplies. Depends on what country it is. So like I say, you can take a pretty, I mean, once again, know the tax board, like these countries that will be coming war-torn, like um, Ukraine, your dollar probably will multiply by 40 to 60%. If it goes to Russia, It'll multiply almost 100%, so 100 times. So, it, you know, it, the, it's, matter of fact, some, I mean, a lot of these countries, uh, like playing chess, after the war is over with, the money is made in rebuilding the infrastructure. So companies like Halliburton and whatever, they're going to go over and get, they'll get government contracts and they'll make billions. And, and that's who, what's fueling this war or rumor of war now, companies like Halliburton, because they want to make all the money. But tonight my, my goal and intent is to to help us understand how the pawns in the world can become queens. Zelda is very confident and mature and conscious, our Monday morning host, she already knows she's a queen, like me and all the other queens on <laughs> Female Solution. But what about the poor, the pawns in the world in this game? How can they become queens? Because people don't understand maybe if they don't play the game, once that pawn gets to the other side, once the pawn gets through the maze, once the pawn maneuvers its way to the other side, it can become what? Whatever uh, position it wants, right? The pawn can become any piece that it chooses, like the rook, the knight, or the bishop. But it can't become the king. Right. If it makes it to the other side. And the name of the game is capturing the king. Right. So, um, you know, all, all those pieces work to protect the king. So how can people who are still uh, considered pawns, that the pawns are the ones, in my opinion, who died in the last three years when they decided to take the jab. Those are the pawns in my Those are the ones got they got rid of them on the board quickly. Oh, just step up to the, the, the medical needle and you're out. Of, and, they, and a lot of them are gone now. So when this, in this society, this world that we live in, how do we get pawns past the propaganda, past the manipulation, the lies, the deceit, and the uh, the uh, 
the confusion of the board, let's say, because once it's like once those pawns get out there and they're trying to maneuver over to the other side, the people on the uh, in the in the hood, for instance, and the people who are ignorant, they're trying to get to the 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 three car garage, big house, to the other side, right? And then on the way, they meet uh, the medical system, and boom, you're off the board. Okay, you're next. Who's off? If the, the the other team, the other the pieces, your your other pieces are smarter than you, what? They're going to get rid of the pawns first, more than likely, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and all those examples you gave were good. Uh, a lot of information is on the Internet, not all of it, but a lot of it is. And this another strategy would be start a family business uh, and get it sustainable where your kids or grandkids could work for you. I'll give you a good example. People that work for, a lot of people work for Walmart. So when they go to work for Walmart, they're making the Walton family richer. They're already billionaires. Okay. They're inheritance. But if you start on business, your kids and your grandkids work their family rich so starting a business uh, a family business will be a strategy from turning that will turn yourself from a pawn into a higher value piece on the board okay so uh, the pawns are maneuvering making their way across the board and then what is the what's the best strategy do you think on the board to protect the king I, I, what I, this is the biggest lesson I've learned playing with my grandson who's seven years old. He's like, oh, he was beating me crazy in chess already. And I started really realizing you got to play defense and offense at the same time. If you, right. if you're trying to get the king and you're not paying attention that the knight or the rook is in your lane or in their, their move position, then you're going to be all out of the game, right? Right. So, in your in your experience or your observation of the game, how do uh, you avoid losing uh, your pawns? What's your best strategy to avoid losing so many pieces well, and getting to the other side and getting that king? In the game, of chess, you have to realize with each move that you make or the ob- or your opponent makes, the opportunities start to multiply. Okay, you have more options for each move that you make. Okay. Of course, that goes for your opponent as well. And you need to think four, five, six head steps ahead of your next move. You have to anticipate on where they might move if you make whatever move and vice versa. Now, you translate that to real life. Okay, <clears throat> um, you know, you have to think five years, ten years maybe 100 to 150 years in advance. Like if you have a house right now and you want to keep that house in the family for your, let's say, your great-grandchildren who are not even a thought right now, okay, you can set up a trust or whatever, and then, you know, you can just have beneficiaries who can live in a house, but they can't sell the house. So when your great-grandchild comes along over 100 years from now, um, they don't have a home to live in. But you have to, so in chess, 
You have to think in advance. So that's the best strategy to answer your question. You have to think in advance. You have to anticipate what could happen. And then if something could go wrong, and things do, then what are your moves to counter that so you won't be set back too much? All right. So let's get into Israel and that land, which is, just blows my mind that they're fighting over that small piece of land. And there are thousands of history behind that conflict. But I don't know if you were able to watch that video I sent you about them. I did watch it. That blew my mind. That, that, now, there is exactly what you're talking about, long-term planning. Ben-Gurion Canal. How many years? I don't know if you remember how many years they've been planning on that one. Right. And this woman is saying, I don't know how many of you listening or know about the Ben-Gurion Canal and the plan by, I would say, by the other knights and rooks and bishops and the other side to bring that canal right through Gaza. And so it really does um, give us a little bit uh, understanding of the rabbit hole, what's going on, if that's true. What, what, and it's more than one video about this Ben-Gurion Canal, the Suez Canal, building a canal through Gaza. And she was trying to explain the French and the British how this canal they want to come through Gaza would bring, I think, more money to the French or the British or in Israel. The, what was your take on that information? That that long-term planning, as you just said, that's how uh, the elite work. That's how the the, mag, the chess masters are playing this game. They've been planning things long-term, and what we're seeing right now is just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, we're only seeing the top of the iceberg from, as we talked about last month or last week. What's underneath is this Ben Gurion Canal plan that they've had in the works for years, 10, 15, 20, I don't even remember how many years, that would impact Gaza. And one of the reasons maybe why they're trying to cleanse that area out and get this canal going. What was your take on that information? Yeah, I, I think watching it, I watched that, that whole video. Uh, in my opinion, it's um, the leadership that they have uh, for that canal is is outdated thinking because we relate this back to the game of chess. For each move that you make, your opportunities expand. So instead of just looking at one way to go through this thing, or to transport oil and merchant goods and all that, there's probably an infinite amount of ways to get to where they need to go to without even touching that canal. But once again, in the game of chess, man being man, is we're not looking at what we have or the resources that we have or the intellectual property that we have. We have our blinders on, and we want what you have. And when you do that, you blind yourself to the opportunities that you're standing right in the middle of. So that, that's why I looked at that video. And that's exactly how people lose in the game. Uh, when I play with my friends and or even my grandchildren, when they don't pay, and I'm, I'm teaching my granddaughter because they're both in a chess club in school right now, the 7-year-old and the 9-year-old, they have a chess club every week. 
and I'm teaching. I play with my grand, or my granddaughter was playing with my friend, and I was trying to show her how you let your defense down. You let your defense down. You're making that move, but you're not looking around to see what your your opponent's move is going to be. If you make that move, you missed out that the bishop is right in line to take your piece. So right. what you just said and what I want everybody else to understand is that this situation in Israel, and I'm going to play um, a history on this situation to really help us see the seeds of history that have to be changed, that need to be changed, and they're being changed. Like when you got the whole, when you got veterans of the United States military coming out and throwing their medals away, something's changing. So we want to look at what you just talked about, the fact that they have this long-term plan. Uh, Let's just say the bishop is in the corner over here or in the corner, and that bishop has a plan to go right down, right across the board to get the other rook on the other side to get to check, right? Okay, if all the, if all the pieces, if all the, the let's say all the, the military moves out of uh, Tel Aviv or moves out of Jordan and they leave open the king, then the bishop is looking at this one path to get to to get the rook on the other side. This is how my grandson plays. He he already he has his, his plan already set before the game even starts. And what he tries to do though, here's what my grandson will do, this to show you kind of the comedy of the game or if he if he's got his plan how he's gonna move and if, if somehow his plan is not going the way he wants, he wants to change the rules of the game. So it's like instead of the bishop moving at an angle, he wants the bishop to go straight like a rook so he can get his plan to work. So how many of of the men, the elites, the Zionists, and all these other characters on this game are changing the rules? For example, the U.N. has rules about war crimes, right? Right. So uh, everybody right now is crying that Israel, and then some Zionists are saying, no, it's the Palestinians who are committing war crimes against Israel, and the Israel is saying, no, it's them, they're playing, committing war. But the rules of the game are, according to the UN, United Nations, war crime rules, which is kind of ridiculous to me, we got rules about war, is you don't kill, you don't destroy hospitals, you don't kill citizens, you try and avoid killing citizens. All these rules that just make sense if you're going to play the game right, you know. Uh, the bishop can't move straight. The the pawns can't skip over here. The camp, uh, the, and, okay, so that just keeps the game in order, right? You, you can play a nice friend. Okay, let's say you can play a nice friendly game if you follow the rules, okay? So they could have a nice friendly war over there in the Middle East if Israel realized that they're committing war crimes and they stopped the fighting, let's say stop the fighting because you're not playing by the rules, honey. You need to stop playing the game. My, as my grandson would do, he just tipped the whole board over. He would just, ah, I don't want to play this game, and he'd run off. That's what, that's what they need to do over there in the Middle East at this point. Stop the game because you're not playing to get with, uh, get, uh, along with the rules. Instead... Right. You've got these Zionists and these elites making up their own rules because 
they've got this one plan to get that Suez Canal through Gaza, and they're going to break the rules to do that. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? But you got to remember this, Fiona. You know this probably better than I do. They're man-made rules, and just like the illustration with your grandson, but then they're higher spiritual laws. Thank you. Thank you. And you, man cannot break those. It's as simple as that. Well, I, I think they can, but then there's consequences. But true, there are consequences. You're right. So what we're looking at now, um, what I see, and, I, and, and all of you can chime in who are listening if you have, you know, another, another point of view, and we do have someone with their hand raised, uh, if you break the rules, man-made rules, there's always consequences. You run a red light. Now, sometimes you get away with that running that red light. Or even if you kill somebody, you might get away with it until they use their detective skills and find you, and then you're going to prison. Right. So you might get away with breaking man's rules, but at some point, karma, reaping and sowing uh, are going to take over. And it, it looks like to me that because um, Israel is breaking the rules, even though they say Palestine's breaking the rules too, everybody's breaking the rules, we're going to get to see the consequent, the spiritual consequences, in my mind, of what happens when you're breaking the rules like they're doing in this war game. And then same thing with chess. My, you know, my, my grandson, when he breaks the rules, I'm like, honey, I'm not playing. I'm not playing this game if you're going to make up your own rules because then I got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to win on a different set of rules. And so the game ends. And that's that's what brings peace because when my grandson says he doesn't want to play because he can't play by his own rules, and I say, well, that's fine. We just don't play. That's peace. We we both go. He goes back to his dad's house. I go listening to my jazz music, and we got peace. They ain't playing them kind. They're not playing like that. Let me go to the phone before I play this next uh, seed of history about Israel, because it's deep. It's really deep. You could go back to the Bible, as I think this one of this uh, these lessons is about the Bible history for that region. But it's deeper than that, even because. What we're looking at, again, is the rules aren't being played the way man made them up, and so what are the consequences? So let me open up the mic and uh, get your Admiral Nelson Bay. Admiral Nelson Bay. Welcome, Mr. Admiral Nelson Bay. What do you have to say tonight? There are two points. Uh, President Trump uh, of late in his um, rallies would uh, say that Venezuela's oil is tar, that it's not a uh, sweet crude oil that you would have maybe in Nigeria or um, other parts of the world. Another point I want to make is that the Ashkenazi Jews are from Eastern Europe, places like Ukraine, Poland, Russia, and they have no um, connection to Palestine, and they know it, and they got what they now call the state of Israel through military conquest, and that's why they're so determined to try to rationalize the extermination of Palestinians who have a more legitimate stake to that landmass than do they. And that's an important point to uh, bear in mind. 
That is an excellent point because, as we say, I'm going to play a little history of um, of Israel. Uh, most people hardly mention the Khazarian Empire. Are you familiar with the Khazarian Empire? I have a very um, small um, conscious awareness of uh, the Khazars. Well, it's like, you know, it, it includes the Ashkenazi. If you, depending on what period of history you're looking at, it would include the Ashkenazi Jews and the other uh, names that are given to Jews. And so uh, the Khazarians come from Eastern Europe. And uh, the history behind the Khazarian Empire is they were a ruthless group of people who conquered lands and then they were thrown out because of their ruthless and, and, and uh, hateful ways. And so they made their way across Europe. There's lots. In fact, there's a book called The 13th Tribe that describes that, that part of uh, European history, the Khazar. I think the Khazar Empire is in the 13th Tribe, if I'm not mistaken. But there's lots of lectures on the Khazarian Empire by Jews who point out the the people who came to uh the the uh Israel the um the land that they're now occupying are not the ones who were listed who were talked about in the Bible. In fact you have a lot of Ethiopian um Jews who have had DNA tests to prove that they are the historical Jews from uh, ancient times, but yet we have this war going on with these Ashkenazis and these Khazarians that they are the, insisting that they are the original. So that foundation of, well, we're the original Jews because you've got uh, uh, Netanyahu quoting the Bible now, talking about what Satan's going to do to the enemies of the Jewish people, but then the question becomes, well, who are the Jewish people? So this drama is going to be interesting because now you've got many, many Muslim Arabic uh, countries who are rising up saying enough is enough. And that's why we're asking how can the pawns become queens to not be caught up in this man, these man-made laws, man-made rules, and instead we here tonight can look at the seeds of history and ask ourselves what needs to change as we listen to the history, especially of uh, Israel, what needs to change. So let me play one of the um, history, 3,000 years, Israel-Palestine conflict. I'll play a little bit of that. It's a 13 minute. I may not play the whole thing. 3,000 years in ten, about 10 minutes. Let's listen to that. The Israel-Palestine conflict, which flared up again in October 7, 2023, is a deeply rooted issue with layers of historical, religious, and territorial complexities. While many contemporary discussions trace its origins to the establishment of Israel in 1948, its roots delve much deeper, spanning nearly 3,000 years. In the 8th century BCE, the territories now identified as Israel and Palestine were under the dominion of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. 
These kingdoms were the political manifestations of various Jewish tribes. Concurrently, the ancestors of the Palestinians, often referred to as the Philistines in ancient scriptures, occupied a stretch of land from the Gaza Strip to Tel Aviv. The Old Testament, a foundational text for Judaism, cites God's promise of a vast tract of land to Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. This divine promise became a cornerstone for early territorial disputes. By 722 BCE, the Assyrians, under King Sargon II, reshaped the geopolitical landscape by annexing the Kingdom of Israel. To suppress potential rebellions, the Assyrians adopted a strategy of population displacement. This led to the Jews' gradual assimilation with diverse cultures across the Assyrian Empire, diluting their unique identity. The late 7th century BCE saw another power transition as the Babylonians replaced the Assyrians. They controlled vast territories, including Jerusalem. Jewish resistance against Babylonian dominance led to the destruction of Solomon's Temple in 587 BCE, marking the onset of the Babylonian exile. However, the winds of change blew again in 539 BCE when the Persians, under the leadership of King Cyrus the Great, overthrew the Babylonians. Cyrus allowed the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem. He also sponsored the reconstruction of Solomon's Temple, a significant gesture that endeared him to the Jewish populace. By 63 BCE, the Roman Empire extended its tentacles to Jerusalem. The subsequent centuries under Roman rule were tumultuous for the Jewish community. Two major revolts against the Romans resulted in catastrophic losses for the Jews, leading to a diaspora where many fled Roman persecution. The rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire added another layer of complexity. Jews faced intensified persecution, being blamed for Jesus' crucifixion. This persecution persisted until 638 CE, when Muslims under Caliph Umar conquered the region. This conquest ushered in a period of relative religious tolerance, allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem. For the subsequent centuries, the majority of Jews resided in Europe, where they faced a myriad of challenges, including discrimination, pogroms, and socio-economic restrictions. Conversely, the period of Ottoman dominion in Jerusalem, spanning from 1517 to 1917, was of considerable importance for the Jewish community in the city. The Jewish population in Jerusalem saw a significant uptick during the Ottoman reign. By the onset of the 19th century, Jews emerged as the most substantial religious group in the city. Under the Ottoman administrative structure, Jews were categorized as a dhimmi community denoting their status as protected non-Muslim subjects. Although they faced certain financial obligations and limitations, they were predominantly allowed the freedom to practice their religious customs unhindered. By the late 19th century, Theodor Herzl, a visionary Jewish journalist, proposed a radical solution, the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. His Zionist ideology gained traction, 
especially after the British government's Balfour Declaration in 1917, which endorsed the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Post-World War I, the League of Nations granted Britain the mandate over Palestine. This period saw a surge in Jewish immigration, which inevitably heightened tensions between Jews and Arabs. The Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939, a resistance against British rule and Jewish immigration, led to the British White Paper of 1939, which proposed a joint Arab-Jewish state. However, the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust amplified global support for a Jewish homeland. In 1947, the United Nations proposed a partition plan to divide British Mandate Palestine into separate Jewish and Arab states, with Jerusalem as an international city. The Jewish leadership accepted the UN partition plan, but the Arab leadership did not. On May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of the State of Israel. This declaration was met with military intervention by neighboring Arab states, leading to the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. By the end of the war in 1949, Israel had expanded its territory beyond the UN's proposed borders. The war resulted in a significant Palestinian-Arab refugee crisis. The 1950s saw a series of skirmishes and reprisal attacks between Israel, its Arab neighbors, and Palestinian groups. The tensions culminated in the Six-Day War of 1967. Preempting a perceived Arab attack, Israel launched strikes against Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. In just six days, Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula Gaza Strip, West Bank, Old City of Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. This victory significantly altered the territorial landscape and further complicated the Israel-Palestine issue. In 1973, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel during Yom Kippur, a major Jewish holiday. Despite initial setbacks, Israel managed to repel the attackers. This war led to the 1978 Camp David Accords, brokered by U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin negotiated the Accords, leading to Egypt formally recognizing Israel and the two nations signing a peace treaty in 1979. As part of the treaty, Israel agreed to withdraw from the Sinai Peninsula which it had captured from Egypt during the 1967 Six-Day War. Palestinian frustrations with Israeli occupation and settlement expansion in the West Bank and Gaza Strip led to the First Intifada in 1987. This grassroots uprising involved civil disobedience, boycotts and widespread protests. The violence and Israel's response garnered international attention highlighting the need for a resolution. The 1993 Oslo Accords marked a significant step towards peace. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Palestine Liberation Organization leader Yasser Arafat agreed to mutual recognition. The Accords proposed a phased withdrawal of Israeli forces from parts of the West Bank and Gaza 
and the establishment of a Palestinian Authority. The Israel's failure to progress on the Oslo Accords promises led to the Second Intifada in 2000. This violent uprising resulted in significant casualties on both sides. In 2005, Israel unilaterally disengaged from the Gaza Strip, evacuating all Israeli settlements. However, this did not lead to peace, as Hamas, a Palestinian militant group, took control of Gaza in 2007. The peace talks that resumed in September 2010 were part of ongoing efforts to resolve long-standing issues between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. However, they quickly broke down due to Israel's settlement activities in the West Bank. Israel has maintained a blockade on the Gaza Strip, aiming to restrict the flow of goods and resources to Hamas, which Israel and several other countries consider a terrorist organization. The blockade has faced widespread international criticism. The May 2010 Gaza flotilla raid heightened tensions as Israeli forces intercepted a flotilla aiming to breach the blockade, resulting in the deaths of nine Turkish nationals. The conflict has seen ongoing violence, including rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel and retaliatory airstrikes and gunfire by Israeli forces. The release of Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit in October 2011 was a significant moment as he had been held captive by Hamas in Gaza for over five years. Major military operations in Gaza occurred in 2012 and 2014, with significant loss of life and infrastructure damage, particularly during 2014's Operation Protective Edge. In 2018, the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was a controversial decision that sparked widespread protests. The U.S.'s peace plan proposed in 2020 was rejected by the Palestinians, given the inequality in the proposed population exchange and the transfer of one-third of Palestine, including most of its To understand the root of the Israel-Palestine conflict, we have to look back a few thousand years ago. Early History of Israeli-Palestinian Conflict In the 17th centuries BC, following the call of God, three patriarchs of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, settled in Canaan, a region approximating present-day Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, parts of Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. 
The region later had the name the Land of Israel, the Promised Land, the Palestine region, or the Holy Land. In 1000 BC, King Saul established the Israelite monarchy, which then was ruled by King David, who made Jerusalem the capital of his kingdom, and his son, King Solomon, who built the first temple in Jerusalem. After the death of King Solomon, the united monarchy was split into the kingdom of Israel in the north, with Samaria as the capital, and the kingdom of Judah in the south, with Jerusalem as the capital. The land became home to a majority of Jews, but then it was subject to numerous conquests of various groups, leading to the significant decrease of the Jewish population on the land. One of these conquests was conducted by the Roman Empire who gave the name Palestine to Judah, intending to break the Jewish connection with the land of Israel. During this time, Christianity, which started as a Jewish sect, ultimately became a dominant religion toward the end of the Roman Empire. In the seventh century came an Arab conquest, beginning the spread of Islam. The Dome of the Rock was built on the ruin of the Second Temple, making Jerusalem the holy city to three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. After Christians in Jerusalem were intensely persecuted by the Seljuk Turks, a Central Asian Empire with ambition to expand its territory, Christians in Europe launched several crusades to bring the holy city back to the hand of the Christians. During this time, many Jews were killed. Others were making pilgrimages everywhere, mostly in Western Europe. From the 16th century to World War I, the Holy Land, along with much of the Middle East, was ruled by the Ottoman Empire an Islamic superpower. The land was unofficially called Palestine. At the same time in Europe, more and more Jews were joining a movement called Zionism, aiming to create a Jewish national state in its ancient homeland. Hence, in the first decade of the 20th century, tens of thousands of Jews moved from Europe back to the region. Israel and Palestine under the British rule. World War I exploded and ended with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Its land in the Middle East was carved by the British and French empires. The British then gave more independence for Iraq and Jordan, and the region remaining under the control of Britain was what it called the British Mandate for Palestine, where Britain promised to establish a Jewish national homeland under its Balfour Declaration, which went into effect in 1923. Tensions between the Jews and the Arabs who both claimed the land grew, which even led to acts of violence. By the 1930s, following the increasing Jewish population in Palestine due to the fear of persecution during the Nazi reign in Germany, the British limited Jewish immigration. In response, the Jewish militias formed to both fight the Arabs and resist the British rule. Then came the Holocaust throughout Nazi Germany, which claimed almost 6 million Jewish lives. After the war, more and more Jews then fled from Europe to Palestine to seek a homeland, escalating the tension with the Arabs. Overwhelmed by the situation, Britain began to withdraw from the region. The Birth of the Israel State After World War II, the UN proposed a plan to partition Palestine into two independent states, a Jewish state and an Arab state, with the city of Jerusalem becoming an international zone with a special status. However, the plan according to which the Jewish, accounting for only one-third of the population, was granted more territory, 56.5% of the land, was rejected by the Arabs. They began to form volunteer armies throughout Palestine. 
Less than one year after that, as Britain completed its withdrawal from Palestine, Israel declared itself an independent state, marking a new bloodier chapter in the struggle between the Jews and the Palestinian Arabs. The 1948 Arab-Israeli War Right after the announcement of an independent Israel, a war between the Arabs and the Jews broke out, which was known as the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The war involved five recently independent Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, the Arab League. Okay, I'm going to stop the history of Israel there and let uh, all of us think about the seeds of history that need to change. Uh, Even if you're not paying attention to the news about this current situation, I think it's really uh, been obvious Uh, for us, especially baby boomers, um, the religious impact um, of all of these uh, wars and countries fighting for independence. a quick break here and we'll be right back after these messages. I'm Beata, your Holistic Life Coach. These days, it's more important than ever to work on your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Are you consciously breathing deeply in stressful moments? Do you have a plan or daily routine to maintain balance in your awesome body? Are you struggling to be disciplined in your eating habits? When you partner with me, I'll help you develop a personalized health plan that works for your particular lifestyle. You can find out more about me at yourholisticlifecoach.com where you can also review my three-step protocol to guide you to abundant health. That's yourholisticlifecoach.com, and I'm Viato. Is Monday morning a struggle to get out of bed, into the swing of things? Well, don't worry, you are not alone. Join us for thought-provoking, Stimulating and mindful conversations on higher learning with Zelda Speaks for your Monday morning mindfulness session on Blog Talk Radio, The Female Solution, Mondays, 7.30 until 9 a.m. Be sure and send your ideas, thoughts, comments, and suggestions. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, visit zeldaspeaks.com and send us your info. We'd love to have you. Experience mindfulness moments with the mindfulness slash stress relief coach, Zelda Speaks, and thanks for sharing the Mindfulness Moment Tip of the Day. Stay on purpose, stay empowered, and stay tuned to your next session of Mindfulness on Higher Learning with Zelda Speaks. Make it a mindful day. And thanks for listening.
And we're back. We're here playing chess tonight, learning about the game, and listening to it with spiritual ears about the seeds of history and uh, what needs to be changed. There's been a lot of dark energy presenting itself in the world lately, in the news, and in our neighborhoods. And that dark energy is surfacing because it doesn't like the light that um, has been presented uh, to us in the way of veterans throwing away their medals. Uh, so we're going to take some calls. Unmuted. We've got, I think we got, uh, I believe, Naima, 31271. Naima, your mic is open if you want to bring in some callers. Your mic is open, 316, and after that, 314637. Three, one, three, 3132, your mic is open. Or we'll, we'll go to the next one, uh, 314677. Yeah, how you doing, Naima? You know, Vieta. Are you still there? Yes, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. Go ahead. Yeah. I was listening to those documentaries. If you're going to learn the history of that area, I ain't talking about Bible history, about some Abraham and all that. You got to go all the way back to the time of ancient Kemet. And go walk forward. People start in the middle of the book, and they don't go back that far because they're trying to use Bible history that says that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Anybody should know better than that. But just like the people in Chicago are complaining about being occupied by illegals, well, the people there in what was Philistine, now Palestine, is complaining about the same thing. They're being occupied. And did you know that talks was being held around the time of the Belfort Agreement about calling Uganda, calling Uganda, calling Uganda the place of return? And I would like to know how that would have looked like. You got some white men walking up into that black nation saying, we're back. That wouldn't look too good. As Nelson Mandela said, as Helen Thomas said, as President Nasser said, as Gandhi said, Mirror Gandhi said, they all say that the country is being occupied by people from Germany, Poland, and the United States. Did you know that Benton Yahoo went to high school in Philadelphia? I know you knew that, didn't you? Netanyahu? Netanyahu went to high school in Philadelphia. That's news. I know it's all news because people don't research themselves. You ever heard of the Big Five? The Big Five was the five major Jewish-owned publishers in the United States. 
And if you had something that went against this story, it was not going to be published. You don't believe me, ask Melissa Santi, professor at Temple University there in Philadelphia. When he tried to print and publish an African-American history book and had on the covers the pictures of Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Harris, they said you cannot put Malcolm X's picture on the cover. And many other things, too, because those researchers like Dr. Ben, Chancellor Williams, Don Henry Clark, Jackson, on they they had to have special publishers to print their books. Why? Well, because the material is being censored. Same way Facebook censors you today and some of the others. So those stories are not true. They lies, they myths. Abraham myth. What about the Jewish rabbis in the Babylonian Talmud and the Sanhedrin that talks about blacks being cursed? Cana being cursed. Your skin would be black, your eyes would be red, your hair would grow nappy, and your members will be elongated. Talking about the black man's peanuts. So anyway, that's it. So, so what do you think? It, the the fact that Netanyahu went to high school in the United States. What does that say about him being in the leadership position he's in now? Being approach uh, many Jews protesting to get him out of that position. What is that saying about him? It's about uh, that it's if about, that people don't. It's about control. If if it wasn't for the United States using taxpayers' dollars to prop up an illegal government, they wouldn't exist. It's just a matter of time. You know when they brought back, when they done an airlift bringing Ethiopians out of Gondor, Ethiopia, back into their country, and I think that was 67, I'm not sure. They made all the black Ethiopian women take birth control, and some of them they sterilized and recircumcised the males. Yeah. Why? Because they want to control the population. That's why. Right. And, and been, the fact been that you, do you know, do you know what Operation Paperclip is? Do you know what Operation Paperclip is? Yeah, all of those. And you know, you had a group that left out of Chicago in 1967. It left uh, Ben Carter, right. went to Liberia and stayed for about three years. Then they trekked. When I say trek, they walked from Liberia into Demona, Israel, and ever since then, the Israeli government has been trying to get them blacks out of that that area. They got just as much right to yeah, return they're, as they're anybody still, else, right? Right, but they're they're trying to evict them now. Uh, even uh, this month, there's a video about that. So see that so country, we, that and, government so is you. racist and it discriminates. And the, and the U.S. government, if you tried to start something in the States and ask for government funds or grants, the first thing they want to hold you to is their non-discrimination clause. You can't get the money if you discriminate. you got to have bathrooms. That's for both sexes. If you don't, you discriminate. You can't get the money. Well, why is this you giving this country, this government, Israel, all this money, and they discriminate to the hilt? 
police brutality. People just don't think. I talk to so you. So thank, thank you. Uh, that was Piake. Uh, I'm not sure what city he's in now, but Piake brings out the fact number one. The, the information I shared with you about the history of all three of these countries, Cuba, Venezuela, Israel, is incomplete. I only played three of hundreds of opinions on the subject. So uh, that's why I say don't take my word for anything on this show. Do your own research. Just as Pianke is saying, we need to do our own research who knew that Netanyahu went to school in the United States? But who knows about Operation Paperclip where they brought Nazi generals and officers to the United States and South America, Venezuela, to work in labs and to become scientists after World War II and the Holocaust. Generals, Nazi generals who were putting Jews in the gas chambers, they brought those Zionists, I would say they were Zionists, over to the United States and South to work in the United States. Now, that could have included, guess who, Netanyahu, as part of the transfer of of citizens, uh, European citizens, into the United States to do what? In my opinion, to develop a Zionist community in the United States, which we do have. Do your own homework. The Zionist community in the United States is alive and well, and that's why we have majority of our, not, maybe not a majority of the congressmen, senators in the United States government who have dual citizenship with Israel and um, the United States. Republicans, for instance, just voted for $14 billion to go to Israel to continue bombing and killing Palestinian children and women. This is the reality of the chess game, the real-life chess game, where, um, as I said, my grandson, who's seven years old, a childish attitude when he can't play the game according to his rules, he just stops playing the game. Or if you had two people who were had a war like mine, warmongers, we would just continue fighting. But because I'm his grandmother, I stop the game. He wants to stop. We end the game, and we're at peace. So what's happening in the United States is really amazing and miraculous that veterans, military veterans, are throwing away their medals and, and claiming that they want to give, they want of the countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, to forgive them for their behavior. Here's a two-minute uh, audio of what was going on. I don't know where this took place, but I actually watched the video of veterans lined up to speak at a microphone to confess their shame. Listen to this. Turning in these medals today for the people of Afghanistan, Iraq, Palestine, and all victims of occupation across the world. I'm here to return my Global War on Terrorism Medal and my National Defense Medal because they're both lies. I'm returning my medal today because under the guise of freedom and democracy, I stole the humanity of the Iraqi people and lost mine. 
as part of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and out of love and respect, out of the Iraqi people and the people of Afghanistan, I'm going to return these representations of hate and destruction back where they came from. Humanize people all around the world because one of the first friends I made is, is Palestinian, and I spent the summer in, in West Bank. For the first time, I learned a little bit what it feels like to be on the receiving end when I was tear gassed in a little village uh, just south of Ramallah. The only medal I'm going to keep is the humanitarian service one I got for being in New Orleans, because that's the only thing that we should be doing as humans. NATO, the USA government, and Israel need to be held accountable for the war crimes, genocide, torture, and drone attacks. I'm returning my medals. Take a hammer. A nuclear biological chemical specialist for a war that didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. And one of 40,000 people that left the United States Armed Forces because this is a lie. I'm giving back my medals for the children of Iraq and Afghanistan. May they be, they be able to forgive us for what we've done to them. May we begin to heal and may we, may we live in peace. I'm here to return my medals because I cannot stand in solidarity and peace with my brothers and sisters in Iraq and Afghanistan as long as I wear them. Instead of liberating the people, I was liberating their oil fields. I'm returning my medal today because I want to live by my conscience rather than being a prisoner of it. I will not continue to trade my humanity for false heroism. I'm going to toss this medal today for the 33,000 civilians who died in Afghanistan that won't have a monument built for them. This medal right here is for the one-third of women in the military that are sexually assaulted by the tears. We talk about staying up for our sisters in Afghanistan. We can't even take care of our sisters here. And this medal right here, because I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all of you. I'm sorry. in sorrow because they killed Afghanistan's and Iraqi citizens in a war that they now believe was unjust, uncalled for, cruel, hateful, and destructive. And they're asking for forgiveness. And my thought is that all of the United States citizens who have uh, observed and watched those wars ought to be asking for forgiveness as well as being compliant and complacent as our government used our tax dollars to send drones and military weapons to kill other citizens of other countries. Knowing now that we are all one, if we are conscious in this uh, war, the battle of consciousness, we are in a battle of consciousness. That's the chess game that I realize as I play with my grandchildren and, and my partner and my friends. It's a game of consciousness. Because if you're playing the chess game only as an offense position, like I'm going after that king, I'm going to get that king, just as the United States has been going after Cuban leaders, going after Venezuelan leaders, uh, going after uh, uh, Palestinian leaders, uh, that game uh, is unconscious game. Because you have to play defense as well in the chess game if you will have any opportunity or chance of winning the game, and that is keeping your life. Many of the leaders in this game of war are losing their souls, just as those military uh, veterans expressed they lost their soul, Afghanistan and Iraq. Obviously, the, the men who spoke 
were in the Afghanistan-Iraqi war, but there was one who met a Palestinian who became his friend, and now he's sorrowful, PTSD, all the, the mental and physical wounds that our veterans have experienced, we can now look back at the seeds of history and say there needs to be a change. This chess game, as it's been played, not in harmony, not in balance, not in fun, and definitely not in fun, has got to end. We, they, we cannot be making up our own rules in these games of war and deciding we can kill children and men. Because, and I say we because our tax dollars are, are being used to destroy communities in Gaza and kill thousands of children and women, and we've been complacent. My, my thought is this. If every United States citizen asks for forgiveness, for the Afghanistan, the uh, Iraqi wars, then we would see a spiritual move in this in the world even. The reason I believe that the heavens are not stopping these wars, interfering in these wars, and we're seeing all this bloodshed and suffering is because we are guilty in the United States of America of the blood that is being shed in these countries that are we have dropped bombs on and we have been fighting in. And I salute the the military veterans who have awakened to the reality of their era in fighting in these wars, obeying their their the commands of their government going to war, but yet now they step back and look at the seeds of history that need to be changed. It's not acceptable anymore this game that, that that's being played and we cannot sit on the sidelines any longer and watch this game being played with bloodshed and the killing of civilians, children, women, and the destruction of a whole area of, of, of violence. It's time for us to, I, for one, we need younger leadership. That was, I heard the, earlier today I was listening to Cryon, someone uh, Mama AZ has been sending that to me for years, and I heard a a summary of the situation we see today. And one of the solutions is we need younger leadership. These old white men who think um, that the game should be played uh, by their rules instead of the universal rules of love and compassion, um, uh, respect, and peaceful maneuvers that bring about diplomacy, this is what we need. And hopefully we'll have younger leaders. The only person I can see who might have, uh, who might fit that bill is Vivek Ramaswamy. He's 38 years old running for president. And that's the only possibility of young leadership that is not warmongering. So I hope that tonight um, I have don't see. Let me see. Check Facebook. I don't see any comments. Uh, let's see. Zelda, our sister Zelda says. Uh, let's see. What was name of YouTube video your guest just mentioned? Um, I'm not sure. Venezuela sounds like a girls' trip. Okay, that that's a possibility. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, because the price, the prices would be great for a girl trip, but, and there's not, uh, I don't think there's a lot of bombs being dropped on Venezuela right now. Uh, and, and Zelda says, great chess analogy from L.A. L.A. has, I don't know where L.A. went off to. L.A., are I'm you still, still here? I'm still here. Still, are you still here? Uh, she says you had a great chess analogy. Uh, you know, Pianki's uh, right. Uh, ben, Benjamin Netanyahu, who attended high school in Philadelphia, right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he was a member of the chess club himself. Wow. So after high school, he attended MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which I'm sure was a chess move for him. And then he attended Harvard University, which was an additional career chess move. Now he runs the country. So he's a chess player from way back. He's also a Zionist, warmongering idiot. So what do you think about that information that he was groomed and educated in the United States? Well, he's just playing chess. Simple as that. Absolutely. Groomed and, and prepared in the United States, along with other Zionists who were educated in the United States, who are now in our government, uh, fighting for, working for more money to send to Netanyahu to drop more bombs and kill more people. That's where we are, folks. So that's why you see so many people all over the world saying free Palestine and uh, stop the killing, uh, ceasefire, because we've had enough. We, we don't, this is not acceptable anymore. These seeds of history, this dark energy that we're fighting now, because the battle of consciousness uh, is so uh, much about low and higher and dark and light, and it was all predicted at one time, actually. So, uh, L.A., I ask you, when you look at playing the game of chess, how much of it would you say is about being aware and conscious uh, of the whole purpose of life and and what's going on in, in our society? You know, that, that's why I said that the chess board, uh, the most important thing that's in my opinion that you need to get to learn is the lands the board. So that, that applies to real life as well. Uh, if you take Benjamin Netanyahu or anybody in that high position, like so he looked he was a husk he learned how to play chess at an early age. He learned how to he was a member of the chess club in high school. So every move that his parents planned and then he planned when he got on his own was strategic. He was thinking years in advance. I mean, the position that he's in right now, he just didn't wake up one day and think I run, you know. No, that, that was in the worst decades before he even became what he became. Absolutely. They, you, you need, and I encourage all my baby boomer uh, friends and senior citizens to learn how to play chess because it's going to help you prevent Alzheimer's. It takes a lot of an, uh, analyzing and mind skills to play the game, memory skills. How many skills would you say, L.A., your person can develop when they play chess? Well, uh, you learn something. Well, actually, you're, good. you're right with your memory. It helps with that. 
It also teaches you how to be a more analytical, analogical thinker. Uh, I mean, we can put it into estate planning because estate planning makes you think 50, 100, 150 years out. You know, what's going to happen to your kingdom, which is your estate or homestead or whatever you want to call it. Uh, And then, you know, what happens if uh, you have setbacks, because everybody has setbacks. And then uh, you also have to live, you know, you can learn, you have to learn the rules. What are the rules of engagement in real life? Um, Same with the chess board. Uh, As your, uh, not your nephew, your your grandson, when he gets frustrated, he has to figure out how he's going to go to the next move. He'll flip the board over, but when you flip the board over in frustration or when you get mad at the policeman in frustration on the street and you flip out, the game's over. How am I playing that? And it's a, it, it really is a battle of consciousness, whether you're playing with a 7-year-old or a 70-year-old. The awareness that you bring to that game determine if you're going to win. You're going to be alive at the end of the game. Awareness about, like he said, estate planning, long-term solutions, decisions, defense, offense, just like in any game, football, basketball, there's an awareness that has to come to the game if you're going to enjoy the game and not lose your life or, in this case, lose your king, all right? So you want to keep your king. That's the name of the game that's told on your king, but there are all these uh, decisions that need to be made and all these factors that come into play. And uh, some things are just not acceptable anymore. This childish behavior, like my grandson's or like the Netanyahu's of the world, has got to stop. This childish in the sense of spiritual uh, uh it's time for us to stop killing each other over a game. Uh, and it's, it's our choice. The veterans are leading the way. I applaud the veterans leading the way to become more conscious, changing the seeds of history that were destructive, murderous, and bloodshedding. So thank you, L.A., so much for bringing uh, your wisdom and your knowledge to the show. Tomorrow, be sure and join Zelda for Thanksgiving. Are you willing to share, especially migrants, on Monday morning? And we just as we talked about Venezuela, there's a reason so many people, there, in fact, there's a double reason. The top of the iceberg says uh, these migrants are poor and um, they need a place where they can be fed and they can enjoy life and they, they want to learn a new country, blah, blah, blah. Under the iceberg, the FBI, CIA uh, agenda, who knows. But just come tomorrow morning to talk about um the migrant situation and are you willing to share because the Americans have a lot to share. When I look at the things in people's garages and all the food that gets wasted, but here's the thing with, with Cuba, Venezuela, Israel, the problem has been the leadership. The leadership has to be changed and we need younger leaders and that's been the problem with all these countries, interfering in government and bringing more hardship, more suffering uh, to the people, the citizens. And Craig uh, Van says, uh, he says, I call them sandbox kids. They want everything to play by their rules 
and when all the kids refuse to play with him, he runs to the teacher and asks the teacher teacher to punish the rest of the children. Oh, my goodness. That's a perfect final word for the war situation we're seeing in real life. A bunch of kids, a bunch of men playing in a sandbox, throwing sand, bombs, and, and, and uh, all kinds of weapons because they can't get their way. So thank you all for joining me. I encourage all of you to do some research on the Ben-Gorion Canal, building a canal through Gaza. That might be a little uh, information under the iceberg that you might want to be aware of as to the root of this whole problem or the plan of these elites, why they're so insistent on cleansing out Gaza so they can put in their canal or play the game their way. Everybody have a great week. Come back tomorrow and let's talk about um, sharing our resources or at least being thankful that you have some Venezuelans and other countries in your neighborhood (laughs) that you can learn about. So uh, Craig says, great show and breakdown of the current. Thank you, Craig. We always nice to see your picture at least and, um, Everybody come back uh, tomorrow. We'll see you. Have a great evening. I'm going to say goodbye now or thank you to our global family. And that's why the Female Solution does, we do what we do. We are one with our global family. I love my Jewish friends. I love my Palestinian friends who are on Facebook with me who are listening on YouTube. I love all of them. And we're going to uh, pull up the roots of evil uh, in the coming days. The universe is going to do that for us, I think. Pull up the roots of evil and change the dark energy that is uh, showing its face right now uh, on the iceberg. So, shalom, everybody. to the end of our show today, but you can hear every show in the archives at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the-female-solution. You can also hear today's show on the Female Solution Facebook page. Go to www.facebook.com slash thefemalesolution. Leave your comments about today's show. You can always reach me on my website at www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. Watch our TV shows, listen to our radio shows, order our books, and be sure to get your copy of the book, The Female Solution. On behalf of our team of radio hosts, I'd like to thank all of you who participated in today's discussion. And to our global family listening from all around the world, we say thank you. To our family in China, Sheshe, India, Zanyaba, Japan, Arigato, Korea, Kamsanida, Russia, Spasiba, Germany, Danke, Poland, Jung Kujung, Merci. Spain, gracias, Italy, gracias, Grazie. Egypt, shukran, 
Ghana, Medasi, Nigeria, Eshe, South Africa, Ngiabonga, Senegal, Jared, Kenya, Asante, Israel, Toda, Pakistan, Shukriya, Afghanistan, Tashakur, Saudi Arabia, Shukran. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum and may peace be upon you and the mercy of God and God's blessings. And stand strong like down the and to all my friends out there, Namaste and Sa'nam. Love you all. Spread the love, spread the love, and spread the truth. Shalom.